Okay, I need you to interact with me for just a second here. I wonder if you would raise your hand if you could say something that's wrong with the world. If you could think of something wrong with the world, can you raise your hand? It's like most people in the room, okay. Others are maybe living under a rock. Yeah, there's so much wrong with the world. Okay, now here's my, I'm not going to ask you to actually say anything. That's, that's why you didn't raise your hands because you're an introvert and you're like, no, he's going to ask me to say something. That's not going to be me. And I'm not going to do that to you. Every one of us, we can spend the next 30 minutes together naming things that are wrong with the world, right? I mean, just thing after thing after thing. But I wonder how many of us, your first thought would be to raise your hand and say, what's wrong with the world is me. Think about it. Where would that have been on your list? I'm what's wrong with the world. This is exactly where Jesus leads us in Matthew chapter 7. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks now. It covers three chapters, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And as you turn your Bibles there to Matthew chapter 7, I'll just tell you we were talking about our worship service this week with our staff, and this was one where uh, one of our staff members said, you got to ask people to wear steel-toed boots to this sermon because you might get your toes stepped on a little bit, okay? So that's just a heads up, just a little bit of a warning here. But as you turn there to Matthew 7, I'll just kind of catch you up to where we've been. Uh, We're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's three chapters long. Uh, We're kind of on the downhill slide just this week and next week. Uh, But you remember several weeks ago, Jesus started uh, with an introduction to his sermon. Uh, We call it the Beatitudes, talking about what it looks like to live a truly blessed life. We all want a good life, right? It turns out that God created us for a good life. And then Jesus gives us the way to actually live that good life, to reclaim the life we were created for. But the catch is that we can only live the life we were created for if we also live a truly righteous life. And that kind of created a little bit of a problem for us. Because you might remember in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says that actually your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. So he's saying like the super religious elite people who like actually wrote the book on righteousness, you've got to be better than them. And that's kind of when most of us go like, oh, well, I don't know if I fit that. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be part of my life. So can I live the truly good life? Can I live the truly blessed life? And Jesus spends the main chunk of his sermon talking about what true righteousness looks like. Not to make us feel bad, but to give us the tools we need to live a truly righteous life. A life of righteousness, by the way, that's not one that we achieve, but one we receive from him. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves from the outside in to then transform us from the inside out. This is what Jesus has been talking about for several chapters now. And so as he gives this vision for a truly good life, he also says because he is the only righteous one who fulfills all of the Old Testament law and prophets, he can now give righteousness to us. So today's passage is kind of like the right-hand bookend of this main chunk of Jesus' teaching on true righteousness you go back to the end of chapter 5 where he starts this uh, he's talking about and exposing the pitfall of assumed righteousness like I've followed all the rules right 
But remember, as we talked about, if we did an autopsy of our lives, that following the rules isn't necessarily what God looks at, but he asks us to look inward and deeper. For example, you might go, well, God, I didn't commit murder. But he says, even if you've been angry at someone unrighteously, it's like you've done it in your heart. And so the bar raises for what true righteousness is. But Jesus offers that righteousness to us. He talks about this assumed righteousness. Then in chapter 6, he exposes the pitfall of show righteousness, the people that Jesus calls hypocrites who are putting on a show. They're playing a part. Uh, They're the ones who put on the mask so that they might get the applause of men. But what they're... The truth is they're not going to get any applause from God, right? Whatever they get from man is all they're going to get. And so he warns us about the pitfall of show righteousness. Well, now at the end of this main chunk of Jesus' teaching, he's going to expose the pitfall of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, where we are quicker to point out what's wrong with the world than what's wrong with me. That's what self-righteousness is. And, And unless I'm mistaken... I think almost 100% of us fell into that category this morning. So we really need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 is where we'll start, and then we'll cover verses 7 through 12 in a few minutes. Matthew chapter 7 says, Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, now, I don't know if you feel your toes getting stepped on yet. But I was talking to our student minister, Aaron, about this passage this week and asking him for some input. And uh, he mentioned a song lyric to me from Miley Cyrus, uh, which... I don't know if I have to say this to you, but I'm more in the category of Billy Ray Cyrus uh, in my life than Miley Cyrus, so I still don't know the song. I haven't even heard it yet, Aaron, but uh, the lyric says this. I did look it up so that I get it right, uh, so I thank you, Google. The lyric says this, only God can judge us, forget the haters. And I, I haven't heard the song, but I don't need to. I mean, this is the attitude our culture has adopted, is it not? only God can judge me is like a tattoo that people get. What are they trying to say? I think probably if I had to translate that into maybe uh, the way God sees it, it would be something like, let me make my own choices. I can be my own God. That's what they intend to say. I love what Aaron's response was when he he told me when he hears people, I'm putting you out there for this, Aaron. When he hears people say only God can judge me, his response is, and shouldn't that terrify you? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus isn't commanding here a passive acceptance of everyone's own choices as is popular today which by the way that's not even new you can look at the end of the book of Judges in your Old Testament and it ends with this phrase that everyone did what was right in their own eyes 
So this isn't new, but Jesus isn't commanding that we just become passively acceptive of whatever everybody wants to do. That, that's not what do not judge lest you be judged or do not judge or you will be judged yourselves. That's not what that means. Jesus is condemning self-righteous judgmentalism. Remember how we define self-righteousness? That it was when we were quicker to point out the faults in someone else, the problems with our world, than we are to point out the ones in our own lives. So Jesus is condemning self-righteous judgmentalism. It's a form of false righteousness. And then he'll call us to true righteousness. So we're not being told, by the way, to drop our moral discernment. Jesus isn't telling us to just forget the rules, let everybody do what they want to do when he says don't judge. He's making sure that we don't pick up the Sermon on the Mount mantle, which, by the way, you might remember some of the things Jesus has called us to in the Sermon on the Mount, like being salt and light in the world. Um, Or you might even remember it when he says in the Lord's Prayer that we ought to pray that God would uh, make things on earth as they are in heaven. Uh, You might remember even last week when we heard the call of Jesus to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. These are the mantles of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is calling us to pick up. But Jesus wants to make sure that we don't pick them up before or without first properly addressing our own unrighteousness, right? The same unrighteousness that he's been shining a light on for two chapters so far. In other words, we cannot partner with him to make right the things that are wrong with our world until we fully surrender to him what's wrong with ourselves. To be honest about our own failures, shortcomings. So why does Jesus condemn self-righteous judgmentalism? Well, look at verse two. The first reason is that's just unfair. It's unfair. If you're looking at verse 2, you see that the self-righteous person is applying a standard or a measure to others that they're not willing to apply to themselves, right? But ultimately, that's going to be made right by God. But for the self-righteous person, they're living in a world that's not fair to others. And so, for one, there's only one fair and righteous judge. He'll make things right. And if we're going to represent him, we ought to represent him rightly, But this is a form that doesn't represent him, self-righteousness. Second reason is that it's hypocritical. Look at verse 3 through 5. The self-righteous person calls out the wrong in someone else without acknowledging the wrong in themselves. And in verse 5, Jesus says with an exclamation point, hypocrite. It's one of those, if you remember like your English classes growing up where the you is understood. (laughs) And he's speaking directly to his followers. This is the only time in the whole gospel of Matthew that the term hypocrite, which shows up several times, it's the only time it's used in relation to the people who are following Jesus. Typically, like in Matthew chapter six, Jesus uses it to refer to outsiders. Or later on in Matthew, he'll use it to refer to the Pharisees who clearly were not living a truly righteous life, but were living a form of self-righteousness themselves. But they were outsiders to the kingdom of God and following the way of Jesus. But right here, Jesus is like looking us square in the eye and going, you, hypocrite. Three times in chapter six, he said, those hypocrites, They're show righteousness, right? They're wearing a mask. They're putting it on the show so that others will give them applause, but they're not gonna get applause from God. And now he turns to his own followers and says, when you are quicker to make a judgment 
about what's wrong with the world than you are about what's wrong with yourself. You are the hypocrite. That kind of hurts, doesn't it? But we need to hear it. It's kind of reminiscent, this idea uh, in verses three through five about uh, the the beam in in your eye and the splinter in your eye when there's a beam in your own. Uh, I was talking with someone this week about how Jesus, uh, we probably shouldn't forget this, but Jesus learned the trades from his father, the carpenter, Joseph the carpenter, remember? So he probably was well aware about woodworking, especially. And it's kind of an apropos analogy for him because he's probably seen some dust fly, right? Maybe even had a speck in his own eye of sawdust, certainly not sin, metaphorically. But this, so Jesus understands this and he says, how can you point out the speck or the splinter in your brother's eye while you have a beam of wood in your own eye? And this is just a silly analogy. Can you imagine? Uh, my dad has a cabinet shop and uh, for most of my younger years, I would spend s- summers sweeping sawdust, right? That was my job at the cabinet shop, sweep up the sawdust. And, uh, you know, the sawdust is tiny. It's just, I mean, it's, sometimes it's almost even invisible when it's by itself, right? But it can do some damage if you get it in your eye. That's why safety goggles are a big deal. But I just was picturing in my mind somebody walking around the cabinet shop with like a giant two by four just like hanging out of their eye because that's the difference that Jesus is talking about. So how does this play out in real life? Well, it's reminiscent of a story in the Old Testament from King David. And if you want to turn there, you can or just jot this down in your notes. I'd encourage you to look it up later. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, at the beginning of that chapter, something interesting happens to King David. He's confronted about a sin in his life. Now, if you're not sure or you don't know about his story, David was a a king anointed by God, right? Not just anointed by God to be the king, but also if you track through your Old Testament, he's anointed by God to be the one king through which the lineage of Jesus can be traced. So the ultimate, like the Messiah, God's ultimate anointed one to be the savior of the world was to come from this guy. So he must have been a really good guy, right? Well, just before this passage, David had stolen another man's wife. The other man was a war hero. Out at battle, David's home and his safety of his castle is his, uh, his big, brilliant home. Right? He, he looks over and sees Bathsheba. And she's pleasing to his eye. Maybe David would have been good to hear Jesus' teaching on lust from Matthew chapter 5. I'm not sure. But David lusts after Bathsheba and then has her brought to him steals this man's wife. Ultimately, later, he would find out she was pregnant. And to cover his tracks, it doesn't just stop there, but to cover his tracks, he brings in uh, the husband from the battlefield in order to try to make things look like the husband was the one involved in this whole scenario. But that doesn't work because the husband is truly righteous and refuses to do that. He wants to honor the king. So does David have a change of heart? No. He doesn't, he digs the hole even deeper. He sends the husband Uriah back to the front lines. In fact, instructs him to be positioned in a place where he will surely be killed. David is like an accomplice to murder, essentially, in this scenario. So all this is going on, and David is the only one who really knows about it, until God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to confront David. But Nathan does it in an interesting way. He tells David a story. 
a fictional story. Uh, David didn't know that at first, but uh, he tells David a story about a poor farmer who uh, is neighbors with a rich farmer. The rich farmer has all the sheep you could want. The poor farmer only has one. The rich farmer comes along and steals the poor farmer's sheep, the only little lamb that the poor farmer had, and takes it for himself. And David, maybe even like you, uh, is thinking in the moment, anger rising up in him, and lashes out and says, tell me who this man is. And Nathan, his his reply is is brilliant. (laughs) He just looks at David, the king, which is hard for a prophet to do. He looks him in the eye and says, you are the man. You're the one who took the poor farmer's lamb. You took the man's only wife. And at that moment, David, the king, the man after God's own heart, the one chosen to be the lineage of the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, he was standing there more ready to condemn a fictional farmer for a public sin than to confess his own private sin. That's what makes self-righteousness and self-righteous judgmentalism so bad. That's what makes it so unrighteous because self-righteousness happens when our condemnation of public sins outpaces our confession of private sins just think about the amount of time you spend thinking about what's wrong with yourself versus what's wrong with the world maybe you could take inventory of your social media posts What if you charted them out and one column was confession and the other column was condemnation? What would that say about what's true about your heart? Think back to the conversations you have with your friends, even people that you've probably sinned against. Have you confessed that to them? Or are you more worried about talking about what else is going on, what other people are doing? This is only going to intensify in the next couple of years being uh, election season, by the way. So I don't want to just keep stepping on your toes. I'm just saying, condemning what's wrong with the world at a pace that's faster than your, the, conf- the confession of your own private sin is self-righteous judgmentalism and is condemned by Jesus. He's calling us to a true righteousness. But there's a third reason that Jesus condemns this. It's not only unfair. It's not only hypocritical. It's also just unhelpful. It's unhelpful. Look at verse 6. This is a difficult verse. In fact, Bible scholars are all over the map about how they interpret this verse. And as I study this, there's, a, there's an interpretation that actually, to me, makes a lot more sense uh, than a lot of the things I was reading. And it, it came first, I heard it first articulated by uh, our pastor Andrew, our lead pastor over in Longview. Uh, just give you some context as you're looking at this verse Don't give what's holy to dogs or toss (laughs) uh, your pearls before pigs or they'll trample it. They'll turn on you and tear you to pieces. The context is is that we're not talking about sweet little puppies, okay? Uh, I know that like kids in the room, uh, you teenagers, even probably your parents, you got dogs at home, you love your puppies, right? Your fur babies, (laughs) you heard them call that, right? Uh, You love them. This is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't even talking about bad dogs. Like, we have a dog at our house who's often bad, 
like eating socks and toilet paper. This is what our dog does, and we cannot stop him. Jesus is not even talking about that. He's talking about like a wild, ravenous dog. Think coyote. And he's talking about not just the sweet little pink pig at the farm with the curly Q tail, right? He's talking about like wild boars. And not only is he talking about these animals in terms of their fierceness, he's also talking about them in a metaphorical sense because both of these animals are what people who were Jewish would have been taught from the Old Testament law were unclean. In other words, Jesus is is pointing out that the dogs and the boars, the pigs, are the ungodly people. And remember, he's calling us to a true righteousness, but he's also at the same time reminding us that we have a tendency towards self-righteousness. And so this is a helpful way to think about this, that Jesus is saying, pointing out the hypocrisy potentially in his own followers, that if we continue to live self-righteous lives, that even the ungodly will see right through it. They will see it, they will turn on us, they will ultimately reject the message we are trying to purport. Now this is timely for us because outsiders, quote, outsiders from Jesus are looking at the church with greater scrutiny than ever before in the history of my life, maybe your life too. And we could see that as, as maybe an affront to us. Oh, we could see it as an offense to us, but Jesus is reminding us that if we don't deal with the self-righteous tendency in our lives to cast blame on what's outside before we receive blame for what's inside, if we don't deal with that, then whatever we're trying to do to cast some sort of holiness or righteousness out to the world will ultimately be seen right through. They're going to reject it. They're going to turn on us. They're going to devour us. Maybe that's what we're experiencing as our world scrutinizes the church. Maybe it's deserved. Now, I can point to public examples. I'm sure you can too. You've seen it all over your news. Uh, over the last several years, it's been even in Southern Baptist life, it's been uh, a really difficult season because we've had people who have been leaders in our denomination. We've had pastors in our churches who have built public platforms denouncing immoralism in our culture until the moment that they themselves fall because of immorality. Abuse, scandal, because they're being quick to point out what's wrong with the world, more quick to do that than to point out what's wrong in themselves. And that leads to being trampled. I wonder if that's not just something that our leaders or our pastors deal with. I wonder if that might also be true for us who just go to work every day and we talk about you know, we were at church on Sunday, but our life on Monday doesn't really match. And I warned you, this is like a steel-toed boot kind of sermon, right? I'm really sorry. I, uh, but we've got to understand what Jesus is trying to say to us. That there's a, an unrighteousness at play, even when we attempt 
to change what's wrong with the world for a good reason. We have to first address what's wrong in us. So the question is, like, if it seems like the world is scrutinizing the church more, it seems like we are having more failures than successes, should we just throw in the towel, right? Should we, uh, should we just forget about ever being an influence for morality again because we know we just don't get it right and we've got all these problems and scandals and should we just give up? Well, certainly not, right? Look at verse 5 a little closer as Jesus wraps up this, uh, this metaphor about the splinter and the beam. He says that we ought to first remove the beam from our own eye so that we can see clearly in order to help our brother remove the splinter from there. So we have a responsibility to our brother, right? Jesus is calling his followers to a partnership in making the kingdom of God a reality on earth as it is in heaven, but it must start with personal full surrender to the rule and reign of God. Now, if you've been tracking this sermon, you know that we have said every week that this is the, the theme of Jesus' sermon is that we were created for the good life under the rule and reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom. Matthew chapters five through seven, that's what it's about, the whole thing. And Jesus is inviting us into a partnership where we can see the things that are wrong with the world be made right in partnership with God. But if we do it before we surrender our own selves to be made right before God, to be completely vulnerable before him and to have all the dark corners of our hearts exposed with the light of Jesus and be shown into with the light of Jesus Christ, until we do that, we cannot partner with him to make things right. So we've got to start there. Um, I was clearing brush as a teenager in our backyard one day, and uh, I don't even really know the circumstances. I don't even remember it very well, except that I pulled on a vine, and all of a sudden, something hit my eye. Uh, something from the tree. I don't know what it was. And I, it hit my eye and I knew immediately and I doubled over and I kind of stumbled my way into the house with one eye and, and I'm pretty sure I was screaming in terror because thinking I had blinded her so bad, thinking I had blinded myself. And so my mom uh, immediately responds and calls her eye doctor and takes me to see him in Longview, drives me there immediately, they get me in, the guy's able to look in my eye and remove the foreign object, and within a few hours, I was fine. But don't miss this, and this is why I tell you this story. If we want to help our world heal from the pains of sin, we have to become personally established with the healer. The only reason my mom was able to help me so quickly and efficiently is that she already knew the doctor. She had already been going to him for checkups, and visits, and prescriptions, and glasses so that when she recognized the problem in me, she knew right where to take me. If we want to help our world heal from the pains of sin, we have to first be personally established with the healer. And Jesus tells us how. Verses seven through 12. Look at this with me. Jesus follows this up with an instruction. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. It really is this simple. Jesus, remember, started this section of the sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, by saying that the kingdom of God is only open to people whose righteousness surpasses even that of the most religious elite. The guys who wrote the book on righteousness. We had to be better than them, right? And we felt a little bit defeated by that. Then he follows that with an even higher bar, Matthew 5, 48. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So if there was any ounce of you that's like, well, I can be pretty good. Jesus goes, be perfect. Not just be good, not just be better. Be perfect. And like a surgeon up to this point, point in the sermon Jesus has been opening up and he's been exposing the sin that's tucked away in the dark recesses of our souls diagnosing our unrighteousness from every angle chapter 5 the assumed righteousness chapter 6 the show righteousness chapter 7 the self-righteousness and giving us a vision for what true righteousness is so Jesus has been unveiling what's really deep inside us exposing it to the light and giving us a way to have a righteousness that is greater than that of the Pharisees and scribes, a righteousness that is greater, a righteousness that is perfect. Jesus is saying, you can have it. How? Ask for it. Seek it. Knock on the door of heaven and it will be opened to you. Not just to you. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks the door will be opened to them. So is it really that simple? Yeah, it is. When you ask God to remove the beam from your own eye, he will do it. Whatever sin is lurking deep in the dark places of your soul, like King David trying to suppress his sin with Bathsheba, whatever could be exposed ultimately will be exposed. But if you ask for God, exposing it yourself and asking God to remove it, he will remove it. This is the promise. Jesus' analogy in verses nine through 11 tells us why. He talks about the son with a father who even like our earthly fathers uh, are compared to God are evil. <laughs> even a good father is like an evil father compared to how good God is. Which father loving his child would give a stone and it, instead of bread it's like a terrible april fool's prank right uh, like dad i need some bread and they instead they replace it with a stone that looks like bread so that when they bite into it it's like, you know instead of a fish a snake who, who would do this well this is, tells us why god will do this first is this that we can't help ourselves against sin as much as a young child cannot be expected to provide food for themselves. Now, I would love for my kids to get a job and help pitch in, right? And they pitch in a little bit here and there. My son makes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's pretty good. 
But somebody's got to make sure the peanut butter gets there and the jelly gets there, right? Somebody's got to make sure the silverware is in the drawer and clean. Somebody's got to make sure there's plates to put it on. I would never expect him to go get a job and make sure and take care of and provide for himself because that's not what a dad does. In the same way, we cannot take care of our own sin problem. But God is good. And he makes provision for us. We are dependents on God. Just a different way to think about it, right? We know we're dependent on him. But it just deepens that understanding when we say we are dependents. We are children who need the good father. So that's why it's that simple. God wants to provide for us. God is a giver of good gifts. Which is the second reason. Now, this is what some theologians would call a token of grace in the Bible, where like the word grace isn't actually there. It's not a theology of grace, but it is a token. It shows us, it's a window into the character of God that shows us the true grace of God. Grace is written all over it, even though the word's not there. So here's the deal. When we bring our sin to God, he's not vindictive. He's not unkind. He doesn't trick us. There's no bait and switch, right? He doesn't lure us in to slap us on the hand. He doesn't make us pay in some other way. He doesn't do any of that. He is simply full of grace. He's good. Just go back and read through that passage and see how many times the word gift and good are repeated. Jesus is trying to show us the character of a good father who loves us. And even when we keep coming back to him with the same problems over and over, the same sins that we keep falling into, he keeps on forgiving and giving. He never stops. That's why in verse 7, these verbs, ask, seek, knock, grammatically these are called present imperative verbs. They're action verbs. They imply a continual action. Not just a one and done kind of action where, oh, I asked, so I'm good. Like my friend who told me that he says a prayer at the beginning of the year for all his food so he doesn't have to pray for all his meals. (laughs) It's bad advice. Instead, these are continual action verbs. Present active imperatives. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. And guess what? God will keep giving. Keep making you find him keep opening the door he will always be responding in that way so the truly righteous person acknowledges their own sin and seeks God's forgiveness at least as often as a child asks for a snack when's the last time you had a kid in your life that needed a snack you may be feeling a little bit annoyed by it, but actually, what if that was just a good reminder to you that you need God's forgiveness? That there may be something in you to confess. Maybe it's the way you respond to the kid (laughs) that you need to go and confess. But our kids need us for that, and we need God in the very same way. And so like clockwork, we can have a regular rhythm of going to God, exposing what's wrong in ourselves and asking him to make us righteous so that then we can go and change the world with him, right? Wasn't hunger 
like one of the main things Jesus said in the Beatitudes, the central Beatitude, Matthew chapter five, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Remember week one or two when I told you this whole sermon is a, a cohesive unit? You're starting to see the connections being made. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. We can even let our hunger physically be a reminder of our need for God. So Jesus is saying to a hillside full of sinners and now to a church building full of sinners that there's hope, that you can be filled, that your sin can be forgiven, that you can know God, that you can have a good life under God's rule and reign in his kingdom as a partner with him in his eternal work forever. But here's why I believe this. Because Jesus didn't just speak these words. He embodied them. He embodied them by dying on a cross for sin so that he could give us the free gift of God's grace. What he told us about, the good father, was given to us through the son. Instead of God aiming his judgment at us, which is, by the way, what Jesus is criticizing in us, right? He's saying, don't aim your judgment at others before you aim it at yourself. This is exactly what God did. Instead of aiming his judgment first at us, he aimed it at himself and asked Jesus, his only son, his very self, to take our judgment upon himself. He didn't deserve it, but because of love, he took it on. And when he died on the cross, he paid the price for all of our sin so that we wouldn't be judgment that we had to receive from God, but if we would receive Jesus by faith, we could receive righteousness from God. The righteousness that's not achieved, it's only received. It comes from the outside in and then transforms us from the inside out. And that's when we get to verse 12. What we know is the golden rule. It's really the opposite of verse one. Don't judge lest you be judged. Verse 12 says, then now treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Once you recognize what's wrong in you and seek God's grace and forgiveness, then you can share the hope of grace and forgiveness with the world. I wanna close by reading a psalm to you. It comes from Psalm 32. Just the first seven verses and then I'm gonna ask you to respond. So even if our worship team wants to go ahead and come on up, this is a great time for you guys to come and get set for our song of response. Psalm 32 says this, how joyful is the one whose transgression or sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Read hypocrisy. When I kept silent, when I hid my sin, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me and my strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I was preparing for a sermon series coming up in Genesis. And there's a line I heard that I just got to tell you today. It's going to be worth repeating in a few weeks. If you cover your own sin, God will eventually uncover it. But if you will uncover your sin before God, God will cover it. He'll take care of it. He's paid for it already. He asks you to ask him for forgiveness through faith. So how will you respond today? Do you need forgiveness for sin? Likely. Do you need to turn away from judgmentalism and self-righteousness? Receive the righteousness that only comes by faith in Jesus? If you need to take a step like that today, we want to help you. Whatever your next step is spiritually, as we sing our song of response, you can respond by just with me walking to the back of the room. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to hear your story a little bit. I'd love to pray for you and help you take your next step. Others of us just need to take this time of song of response and just confess our sins to God and seek his forgiveness. Psalm 32 reminds us that that will bring joy to our lives. So let's respond in that way. I wanna pray for you and then we'll sing. God, thank you for your gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ alone. None of us deserve it, but you loved us enough to give it to us anyway. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would find their righteousness in you alone, that we would avoid our assumed righteousness of just rule keeping or show righteousness of putting on a mask, that we would avoid self-righteousness of being too quick to point out the wrong in others before we point it out in ourselves. God, may we be a people who humble ourselves before you, experience the freedom and forgiveness that comes only through Christ. God, shape us into people who continually confess so that we may partner with you in making right what's wrong in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.